Hello, and welcome to this Glass Tire podcast. I'm Brandon Zeck. This is the first in a series of five podcasts that we recorded live at the 2019 Satellite Art Show at the Museum of Human Achievement in Austin, Texas. Satellite is an art fair dedicated to showing young dealers, artist-run spaces, and nonprofits, and this inaugural Austin event ran concurrently with South by Southwest. In the DIY spirit of Satellite, we set up shop in a van outside of the fair and used it as a sound booth to record these podcasts. This episode, recorded on the fair's opening day, features two conversations. The first is a talk with Quinn Dukes and Julia Claire Wallace. Quinn is a Brooklyn-based performance artist who founded the online platform Performance Is Alive, and she also curates performances for Satellite. Julia is a Houston-based performance artist who is the co-organizer of Experimental Action, a biennial performance art festival in Houston. The second talk is with Houston artist Henry Sanchez. We spoke to him after his performance at Satellite about his upcoming project along Houston's Buffalo Bayou. Before we start, I want to apologize for the ambient noise in the background of this podcast. Keep in mind, we were recording outside, and we're just going to roll with it. Enjoy. We're sitting in the back of a van uh, at the Satellite Art Show in Austin, Texas. It's the first day of the Satellite Art Show. And uh, who am I sitting with? You're sitting with Julia Claire Wallace from Houston, Texas. And Quinn Dukes from Brooklyn, New York, with Performances Alive. So uh, we were going to have a conversation, or we are going to have a conversation. Uh, Did we change our minds? <laughs> I don't think so. I hope not, because we're sitting here, so that would be kind of awkward if we just stopped right now. Uh, about performance art. Yes. And performance art in Texas, and performance art at an art fair, which is something that you don't see that much, or if so, it's very niche and might be sellable oh yes whereas I, I think at the satellite art fair which is where we are now it's not that sellable <laughs> uh, no no it's one not bought anything from me what is it I said no one bought anything from me today <laughs> well you were giving away money <laughs> <laughs> that's true I did give away money <laughs> so uh, I want you each to just talk a little bit about what you do you've already introduced yourselves but what do you do why are you sitting in the back of this van at the satellite art show <laughs> okay um well i'm the performance art curator for satellite art show and this is my fifth satellite um in our third location so um it's been a real pleasure, of course, to be able to offer a space that is specifically devoted to performance, performance art, and um, film and performance documentation. And um, as I said, I'm based in New York. I'm a performance artist myself, and I came through curation with the understanding and experience of being a performer. And I think that when you're in performance art, having that experience is critical to being a good curator of performance. So that's me. <laughs> I think part of it's also being a performance artist and an organizer, you realize that not a lot of people are doing it. So if you realize in yourself you have the qualities, then you kind of take on that impetus that no one else is really doing in the place <laughs> wherever you're located. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And um, 
I was really, when I decided to work with Brian on Satellite, um, when he asked me if it was something that I was interested in, in doing, I asked if I was going to have a space that could be devoted specifically to performance the entire time. And um, he said, yeah, <laughs> in his Brian way. And, and I was like, great then that's what we're going to do. And so the programming, as much as I have the time and our open hours, then we're featuring work. And it's that's important to me because that doesn't exist, like you were saying, in art fairs. And Julia, why are you here? I am here because, um, because I, I love performance art. I am the creative director of Experimental Action, a performance art festival that happens every two years in Houston. We just did our second iteration. It went really well in February. And uh, Quinn reached out to me, and I um, talked with her a little bit about what's going on in Texas, and, and um, we discussed the lineup. And I performed here today, so I actually got to do some performance, which was really cool. You're one of those people who is a performance artist and decided that there needed to be more performance art happening, or at least a place a place where people could come and see it and know that they could come and see it. I did, I, I did and also it, the way, I, it's very much an extension of my performance art just to create uh, containers or communities in which this kind of creativity can happen. It's a, it is a social sculpture, a social practice, um, especially uh, the way experimental action happens. It's a, it's a very unique festival, it's set up very much as an art project instead of a uh, wise way to sustainably present art. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how things that can really prosper in terms of like artistic content should happen though because that way you kind of don't have any accountability except for yourself and your <laughs> audience which are the true people that you should have accountability to yeah. those are the main people that you're trying to please or that you want to challenge maybe not please i feel like performance art please isn't the right word no i wouldn't i wouldn't say so but um yeah it's it's definitely um you know, giving respect and giving time and honoring the artist and honoring the discipline that is often exploited for one reason or the other. It's it's something that can create a buzz, a quick buzz, and then it's and then it's tossed aside. And um, it is really important for us to to give to really care for what can happen when artists work together and when artists are curating events. Um, and that's that's really the other side of the coin of why I'm a part of Satellite is because this is an artist-run fair. Um, and so we approach the programming and, and the artists that we work with with that in mind. And I, I think, you know, it seems like your festival does too. I see so. Mm -hmm. Julia, as coming in as a sort of guest <laughs> Texas knowledgeable performance art programmer to the fair. Did you think about it any differently than programming a festival? I mean, it is an art fair, but at the same time, this is a building that used to be a sex toy warehouse on the east side of Austin. It's very much an experimental non-art fair space. So mm -hmm. kind of how did you think about putting together a program of 
Texas artists in a space like this in a city like Austin, where most of the performance art happens either maybe in individualized institutional exhibitions or in something like Fusebox Festival, which is almost kind of a performance performing arts, and it kind of crosses yeah. those boundaries. But yeah. everything I've seen today, Henry Sanchez, Jim Pertle, um, you, mm -hmm. <laughs> are markedly performance art. <laughs> Yeah, well, all, I mean, all I did was suggest a whole bunch of people, and then Quinn chose who and, and organized how and when. Uh, it is, I am, it, it feels so much more relaxed than the festival which I just came from. It's lovely. Uh, I, when I suggested names, um, I thought about, I just thought about who I, who I thought would, you know, bloom in this situation. Uh, but it was also interesting. I, it was inspiring to me to encourage all the people that I work with to to better uh, present themselves online. And um, I, I will say Houston artists have pretty good photos because Performance Art Night um, has made it a point to provide documentation. So. Houston artists have a lot of quality photos, but we, we don't have very many websites or um, or good writing. I mean, like good writing about specific artists and, and the work they've been doing. So that that was a cool thing to notice, and and something I've already started talking to some people about creating some workshops to to feed and nurture that part of us, the, the marketing side. Yeah, because your names and the links that you provided to the mm -hmm. website is, I mean, I think you provided as a generous, I don't know, <laughs> you a lot of names uh -huh. um, of people that you really believed in. Mm -hmm. um, and in the selection process of deciding who, mm -hmm. uh, it really did rely on the digital yeah, presence, absolutely. which is... It can be really, really challenging when curating, mm -hmm. and um, you know, typically in these situations for the fair, it's a blend of local and international um, artists, and um, the the way that we have that documentation can can make a quick decision, yes or no, in terms of uh, opportunities. So it's it's difficult, but. Um, I'm, I'm excited and, and having your experience and mm -hmm. working with the artist and the capacity that you have mm -hmm. um, with the local artist specifically is, was really, really valuable yeah. information because you were offering the, the people based off of in-person experience right. of their work, mm -hmm. um, which is really why it was so important for me to be able to connect with you. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's one of the challenges of presenting or describing or writing about even performance art. As someone who's reviewed performance art, <laughs> one of yeah. the more complex things is that you have to describe the performance or what you're going to say makes no sense. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, I mean, there's there's a limit to how art looks on a screen or how art looks through a photo, uh, photograph. Right. So, you know, if you take a photo of a painting, at least you can see generally the colors and the form and everything right. in it. Whereas with performance art, sometimes yeah, per no documentation can look great <laughs> and the performance might not be. Yep. Also, and there's a challenge. Yes. Uh, Julia, kind of what you mentioned a little bit, and it's why, Quinn, you had to bring in a ringer 
uh, <laughs> for the Texas portions of the performance. I like that. Um, of how the performance art community is very distinctly separated from the art community, or at least it's something that I've found in Texas, mm. and I would like to get mm. your comment on it maybe in New York or in Brooklyn, it's a little different. Yeah. Um, but in Texas, I'll go to performance art nights that you host, Julia, and not see anyone that would be at a gallery opening or the, at a museum True, yeah. or mm -hmm. anything like that. And it's actually, it's refreshing in a way. Yeah. It's also really great because generally speaking, the audience is so much more representative of who we are as a people. It's yeah. a lot less white. Of course, I say that right now. There's three white people talking about performance art on this podcast. But generally speaking, of course, it's not a perfect community. It's not perfectly representative. But it's made a lot more progress than um, general art communities or galleries or anything like that. I think because it's so involved on the body and telling a story. And it's the, uh, it's the medium that a lot of artists choose that might not otherwise have a place to show their artwork. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there is absolutely division in um, mediums in, in, in New York, 100%. Uh, I, I will often go to performances, um, performance programming, and there's so much overlap. I mean, that's like, there's an oversaturation in, in New York of things to see and experience and it's impossible to see it all. And so I do find that there are similar people that are coming and, and visiting performance over and over again. But I don't feel like I'm completely disconnected from the, um, the traditional fine arts community. And I think that's because there are a lot of hybrid artists that performance is a part of their practice um, they're also creating you know multi-dimensional multimedia work and because of that there's a broader scope mm -hmm. well, how do you think it is Julia in Texas do you agree with my assessment or do you think oh, that I think like if I'm thinking about performance art night or even experimental action, I, mm -hmm. I would say yes, but but thinking about it here tonight, Nestor Topshi was here, uh, Henry Sanchez was here, and Jim Pirtle was here, and they are all very much... Stalwarts of yeah, the Houston they, art scene. They make sculpture, <laughs> they make paintings. Um, they're not just performance artists. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's something to think about. It's interesting. I, I feel like I haven't got a ton of good reception at like U of H with all the painters or this the sculptors it, I mean, it's shifting a tiny bit but um, I mean that's where I went to school as a painter and I well in a painting block as a performance artist and they had no idea what to do with me <laughs> had people walk out of my crits regularly <laughs> so um, there it felt it felt uh, people were not excited at the time yeah, I can't think of anybody whose like main thing is anything else. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's part of it's part of finding a community. Yeah. Why people walked out of your crit? Those were obviously. Yeah, they weren't my people. 
<laughs> I mean, I can also, I, I don't know your, how your crits uh -huh. went, but I, I can say that um, I feel like it's often because the history and um, the, the, critical, the critical discussion of how to explore as a growing artist the, this discipline in particular and its vastness. It is not just one type of performance. Mm -hmm. there's, there's not one singular mode. And mm -hmm. in selecting the artist for this fair, that's something that I is really in for any satellite that we do, is, is showing a broad scope of, of what performance can be. Um, I find that often if there is, uh, if there is any sort of judgment or, or um, lack of attendance or whatever, it's often because there's just not, there's not anything else to compare it to or they don't have it, they don't have the, the history of it and um, and they're afraid that it's just going to be purely um, naked people running around making a mess. That's <laughs> performance arts. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on an you're touching on an important point of how important the history of performance art is, but how also the history of performance art makes you think that it's. I hesitate to use the word disgusting because. It's, I don't think it is, but to right. some people it's disgusting. You know, I'm thinking about sure. Carolee Schneeman recently passed away and yeah. Meet Joy wasn't performance art, but it was, or it kind of was oh, in a way. Oh yeah, I would consider it to be. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it so, has, it's so interesting. I mean, Jim Pirtle who performed tonight is a great example. If you see his work, I mean, we, I mean multiple people wept today in his piece. Um, but there often is something sort of shocking or um, fantastical that happens within it that and people when telling the story it's just like oh yes he eats mayonnaise but that's not what happens if you're there like that's it's something very different yeah. and so it is hard it, it gets lost in translation sometime maybe because, maybe just because people like to tell a shocking story um, but yeah. the the actual impact and the substance of these pieces get lost in translation. Well, because yeah. this goes back to the documentation yeah. problem of that's all that's left. Yeah. A photo and a story. Yeah. But who's writing the story? Who's telling, you know, yeah. like which photos are we sharing? We, yeah. we, we have some power there. I think so too. And, and one of the reasons I started Performance is Alive was actually because I wanted to give an opportunity to the practitioners to freely talk about their practice. Um, and so the artist features and interviews are, are really allowing that that openness and discussion. And then of course, you know, there's there, there's the there are the other sides of the writers that are reviewing and experiencing, but they're performers too. So tell us a little more about performance is alive because in addition to do curating performance for satellite, you also do this and <laughs> I imagine a lot of our listeners might not know what performance is alive is. Yeah. So I created Performance is Alive um, it worked almost five years ago. It's kind of wild how time flies. But I started it because um, I was working at the School of Visual Arts in the city and um, I was doing some workshops with students and we were having a really hard time finding a resource for current performance practitioners. Um, 
they were able to easily access, this is the, on the undergraduate level, they were able to easily access, you know, artists from 60s, 70s, 80s, which of course is important to their education. Um, but I found myself giving those resources from my own experience of being in New York at the time, you know, however many years, and, and then offering it to them. And then I started compiling the, the spaces that I knew, both, you know, in the States and globally. And, and then I started interviewing the artist. And, and, um, and so it started as an educational resource um, for, for students because I really, to go back to the lack of um, focus on in education, on performance as a medium. And so that's really where it began. And uh, it grew pretty quickly um, into also being a curatorial platform. Um, and so right now it exists as um, still online blog content, reviews, artist features, but we have a very strong presence in bringing performance curation to several different cities. Does that answer? That answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what have I been doing? That's, <laughs> yeah, whenever we have to reassess something like that, it kind of throws us off a little bit. So, I always just, I kind of like origin stories. So how did each of you get into performance art? I, that's, that's a cheesy question, and I'll acknowledge it's a cheesy question, but I mean, I'm interested in people and how yeah. someone comes to performance art is always interesting because I mm -hmm. usually find it's either a story of necessity or of not being able to communicate something that they wanted to communicate and the only way to do that was through the body or, yeah. you know, artists come to it in really interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. You can go, okay. go first. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, well, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Tennessee and I did not have any access to art classes when I was, I don't know, when I was in high school. Um, but I did uh, dance um, and I did, you know, some show choir. <laughs> and so I had very performative already arts yeah. experience, but I didn't have any, I didn't have any history of art beyond that. Um, and at the time we didn't have a museum in Middle Tennessee, so. Um, but I went to, uh, I decided that I wanted to pursue an architecture program when I went into college, just kind of on a whim. And um, through that, I had to take drawing classes. Um, and then I also had to take some art history classes. And it was through the, I wound up having to go to some different schools, but I, I found myself um, creating solutions to the prompts from my teachers that were performative. I was presenting actions and for my drawing assignments and I didn't have any context of what I was doing at all until my professors started showing me some mm -hmm. um, examples, uh, Janine Antoni, Francis Alice, you know, different um, Yves Klein, uh, different artists that were using the body as mark making at the time. And then I'm like, what? This is a thing you can do. What yeah. is this? How did I never know about this? And that became the access point for me. And I was absolutely one of a handful of performance artists in 
Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and that's why I moved to New York once I finished undergrad. And um, from there, New York just kind of carried me into a, a, a further education of just by experience and by practice and being invited to things. And that's, that's how it started. Julia? Uh, so I was going to the University of Houston studying art. Um, I had had a pretty uh, constrictive, uh, conservative Christian upbringing. <laughs> and, uh, and so I got to art school and, and um, man, I just started asking myself many questions and I ended up I tried to take Elia Arce's performance art class, but I was terrified, and I actually dropped the first time uh, I took it. But but by the next semester, I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive in. I'm gonna do this, and it really just completely changed my life. I think um, growing up bisexual, I knew I was bisexual in a Christian environment that in which all the grown-ups around me you know, spoke against something I, inherently in my body I knew that I was. Um, when, I, when I finally got the chance to honor my body and, and not see it as something evil, uh, but, but see it as something that would teach me or heal me and listening to it, uh, following, you know, the impulses that came from it uh, was so freeing. It felt amazing. <laughs> so many breakthroughs, so much fun. Uh, Ellie Arce was my teacher and, and she really did change my life in a million ways. I still think of like words of wisdom that she gave to me on a, like a weekly basis. Uh, she's a great artist who sometimes does work in Houston still. So that's, that's me. You mention words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it's not like either of you are sitting on the rocking chair <laughs> on the porch looking back at your life yet. You're far uh, from it. Here's hoping. But I know there are a ton of young performance artists out there or performance or possible performance artists. I call it performance curious. Nice. Um, That's good. <laughs> and, you know, if any of them happen to be listening to or stumble upon this podcast for whatever reason, mm. advice, performance is such a weird world where there are a ton of opportunities but you really kind of have to be in the world to know about them and breaking in I feel like is the hardest part <laughs> yeah I agree with that mm -hmm. yeah I mean um, my words of advice would be to I mean just say say yes to as many workshops as possible if you are able to find them um, mm -hmm. I mean I <laughs> I found the performance community in New York that really helped push me through and um, on a weekend when I was sick with bronchitis or something and I wasn't able to attend a, a, some sort of exhibition but I did research instead and so I just started researching local galleries um, and I found a workshop that was being um, produced by Grace Exhibition Space mm -hmm. in Brooklyn 
by these artists that I had heard from before that were international. And so I was terrified, but I went. <laughs> and it changed my life. Yeah. The It was a two-day workshop, and I felt like everyone that participated in that workshop, it was like they were immediately family after two days mm -hmm. because it becomes, like, such a revealing... It, it is, you know... You do make yourself vulnerable as a performer, and you just have to be okay with with that. So, just gotta say yes, <laughs> even if you're sick. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, I would say connect online to as many things as possible. Um, apply for things there are opportunities document what you do it seems like it's not important sometimes it seems like it's not worth it in the moment but man the documentation it, it can take you so far and and it is actually sometimes kind of nice that <laughs> the documentation can look fantastic even though the piece may not be fantastic yet mm -hmm. you can you can use that <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, while you learn um, I mean the the images are art it's that's valuable as well and the story that lives on is is valid uh, there's so so much performance art history that just you know comes from small stories of events that could never be translated into words uh, what else the other thing that popped into my mind would just be to go do things mm -hmm. go see performance go art. see it yeah um, even if there's just one place that is doing it that you find you'll f I, I believe very firmly that the performance community is is quite welcoming in my experience it is in Houston um, for sure yeah. and if you start going to things then you will find opportunities through just attending yes and people need help all the time and helping other artists is an amazing learning opportunity and it does it like reinforces that family thing that happens when you're when you're doing this transformative work together uh, one of the first things I thought performance art was, was doing the thing that you're most scared of, uh, which is not always sustainable, but works sometimes, works really well sometimes. Now I'm thinking that maybe it's, it's the thing that um, it seems the most pleasurable. I'm not sure. I'm playing with that idea. You, you but, really uh, did a 180 on that. <laughs> Both of those are good things to try, I'll say that. <laughs> If you need a starting point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I have any more questions. Do y'all have any final thoughts about the satellite art fair, about performance art, about anything? I think that um, performance, it you know, experiencing it in person is critical to building an understanding of it, mm -hmm. and so. And that is, as a pr practitioner, as a curator, I learn more through witnessing performers present their pieces every single piece that I watch. Mm -hmm. I learn through seeing you. I learned through seeing Jim earlier today. Um, and, and so it, it's impossible to wrap it under one specific set of words. 
<laughs> just witness it. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll let that be the end. <laughs> Thank you all Thank for you, taking Quinn. time to talk today. Yes. Thank, Thank you, Brandon. Thank you so much for your time. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> this is awesome. We are sitting in a van here in front of the Museum of Human Achievement at the Satellite Art Fair in Austin, Texas. Wait, please don't take sitting in a van the wrong way. We're sitting in the back <laughs> of, van, of a van. We're tailgating. It's open. It's, it's open it's to the open. public. People can see us. You'll see a photo <laughs> of it. It's it's fine. Uh, I'm Brandon Zeck, and... I'm Henry Sanchez. And you just did a performance. I did. I what I what it's it, The performances that I normally do uh, have a... a uh, th there are a different iteration of the social pro practice projects that I do. So, for example, in Brooklyn, I have the English Kills project, and um, what I do for uh, this social practice by by remediation project is I give a lecture about the problems of a very polluted creek, and then I transform into uh, a great egret. So I start off, you know, looking very formal talking about all the science, and then that's when my persona changes a little bit. So this one here is, um, while I don't necessarily transform, what I do is I, I bring a microscope that has uh, image-making capabilities, and I project the uh, what's available out here at satellite, uh, natural and unnatural things, and I talk about uh, the project that I'm starting in Houston, which is called the BioArt Biotorium. So uh, for that component of the performance, I hadn't actually ever seen you do that before. I was wondering what you were doing when you were walking around the grounds collecting, I mean, little flowers, little bits of grass, little bits of trash, right, debris, right. all that kind of thing. And it turns into this beautiful kind of slow-mo montage that's a microscopic view of a landscape. Right. Well, what it is, it's, it's, it's a reflection of what's here on the grounds. And um, what um, I'm able to do with the microscope is have you look at the grounds in a different way, um, which is sort of the same sort of strategy that I'm using at the Bayutorium, which is going to be on Buffalo Bayou. I want people to look at the environment that they're in. And this is Buffalo Bayou in Houston. Uh, Buffalo Bayou in Houston. And um, uh, through the tools of science, through a microscope, uh, microscopically, uh, in, in a way, an aesthetic way, where uh, they're not used to, you know, uh, observing. Well, that's, you know, being in Houston, the bayou is such a large and important part of our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And many of us never think about it because unless you go to a park that's along the bayou, of which there are starting to be more, but there haven't been that many historically, or unless a bayou floods in your general vicinity, mm. it's just kind of a byproduct of living in the city, and you never really put much thought into what it is or what it does or the landscape yeah, of the, it. The bayou is seen in, in almost like a this strange sort of binary uh, way. It's, it's seen as either something that it used to be for industry, or it is seen as something that could be potentially threatening. Um, but I think there's, this is a real natural resource that I think all Houstonians uh, need to uh, develop a closer interrelationship with. Um, they need to understand that 
whatever's happening there in the bayou, we are a big contributor to um, its condition. Whatever, uh, whether it's welds, whether it has contamination, or whether it does not. And you see, and if you see life coming back, that we, we can think about it as a way of where we're contributing to that, you know, proliferation. So what's this project uh, gonna look like? I know you got uh, an idea fund grant recently to help right. make it happen. I know you've also mentioned it's gonna be a bilingual project. That's right. It, well, it's in the East End, Second Ward. Uh, it's across the street from Tony Marin Park. Um, it's important that as a, a socially engaged uh, artwork that it, it has a, a real direct uh, relationship with the historic uh, Latino, Hispanic, Mexican-American communities that have been living there. I was born uh, directly across from that in Denver Harbor. Uh, the Bayutorium uh, sits on a property that is owned by the Buffalo Bayou Partnership. Uh, it is at their pontoon boat dock. Uh, the lab is inside a shipment container, which is about 8 by 20. It's going to have uh, microscopes. Uh, it's going to have image making uh, technology. It's going to have printers. Uh, the microscopes, you can photograph, you can take video, you can project you know, small things in a large scale draw it out, make watercolors, make collages. Uh, there's a lot of different ways where we can kind of rethink the, the studio environment. So by using this sort of technology and using the actual biomaterial, quite frankly, um, we're able to sort of uh, engage in this nature without it having to be pedantic, without it having to be sort of wonky, without it having to be of quite frankly kind of boring. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about having fun, it's about making art, um, but we're using microscopes. Well that's kind of falling in line this project with the convergence of art and science in recent mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And you know one of the challenges of doing a project like this is making it so that it's not a science experiment because it isn't really a science experiment because then it wouldn't be a socially engaged art project. Well, and it, wouldn't, yeah. it would be less accessible also in a way if it were just a purely kind of coming at the bayou from a scientific perspective. Right, exactly. It's art. And because it's art, it means it doesn't have to work. <laughs> but because it's art, it also means you don't necessarily have to observe very strict protocols. But, but because it's art, we are able to uh, pose certain questions and we are able to look at uh, ethical and ecological considerations uh, in a way that a strictly science project doesn't uh, really deal with in a, in a direct way. When you're dealing with a science project, it's going to have the protocols, it's going to have the benchmarks, as they call it. Um, it has to be done in a very scientific way. Um, but the, after the evidence is collected, after a large sample is collected, it is only then, after the evidence is compiled, that one can start uh, you know, inferring what this means. Now, with an art project, it's a little bit different. We don't have to go through all those steps. We can go straight to it. Uh, we can basically look at this as, as something that um, has problems, and uh, we can go around sort of the uh, sort of potential 
issues of, of dealing with it as a science project. We can quote unquote think outside the box, very overused term. And we can use art to sort of come up with some sort of speculations. Um, there are times when some of those speculations actually lead to certain discoveries. And there have been art projects that have done that. So, but, but because it's an art project, we're able to take the intellectual leap. We're able to take the conceptual leap. We're able to, to use art to sort of pole vault and... Um, cut straight through it. Cut straight, cut straight through, through it. Cut straight through it. <laughs> but, um, but no, it's, um, uh, it, it has happened. I've seen it happen with other art projects. I would like to think that it happened with my project in Brooklyn uh, because I did discover a natural spring in this very polluted Walden Creek that nobody has noticed before. Mm -hmm. um, I have discovered uh, the return of certain uh, new uh, kinds of life forms. And um, I like to think that we're, that my project in Brooklyn helped contribute to the different strategies on how we can clean up a uh, polluted creek. And um, uh, one can go to the Newtown Creek Alliance master plan and perhaps maybe even see some evidence of that. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we'll, um, we'll see. What does the knowledge share of projects like this look like after the fact or well, after projects have kind of wrapped up like that creek project? Well, it hasn't wrapped up. It's still going on. Okay. I still have to actually announce that I discovered a creek. But the, uh, the question was how does it... Um, how does the knowledge share process, I guess, not uh, just after they wrap up, but throughout it? Because you have a space, which is an amazing thing to have a space that you can converge people around and that, that right. kind of actually is a great way of engaging a community, having a place where they can come, but also getting all of that knowledge outside of just the space. Right. Well, th the way is, is, is through making art. Um, with the English Kills Project, you know, I asked them to reimagine uh, how they would want to see change uh, in this place. How would they redesign the creek? How would they introduce new wetlands? How would they introduce mussel habitats? So they're acting as, as landscape designers, they're acting as artists, they're acting as, um, as naturalists and designing something. So they're, so they're making, uh, so I give them a template, I give them a map, an aerial view, and they start drawing on top of that. Uh, and they start playing with certain tools that I give them. And um, that's, that's kind of how it, it should work. It, it, it can't just be about uh, just sharing a, uh, the knowledge in an intimate way. It has to be about what is, what is the physical sort of uh, uh, residue of the project. You know? So I have the maps and I, then I post them on the website or they can take them home. They can choose to have them, you know, if they want to. It's whatever they, whatever they choose, but it's theirs. And it's, they can say that the, I authored this because on the template there's a space for their name um, and uh, that they can take credit for that. And, um, you know, I mean, that's what the English Kills Project. Here, with the Bayutorium, it'll probably be a little bit different. Um, they get to make art, but through their excursions along the, the bayou, through the uh, boat tours, which are also going to be bilingual, they can photograph, they can collect, they can bring it back to the shipment container, they can put it underneath the microscope, and they may be able to find things that some 
biologists and naturalists have not been able to do. Because why? If it's a big, if it's free, if there's a lot of people, in a way, it's become kind of becomes like crowdsourcing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's a benefit to crowdsourcing and getting people involved in ways that, well, I almost feel like we're overusing this word in mm. this podcast, but that, that are accessible. Because well, then accessibility is important. That's yeah, an important word. Of course. Um, but that, I mean, leads to, you know, one team and one research scientist versus 30 people that are on this one tour. And, and which could 30 be... 30 different samples. And it could be 30, you know people per hour it could be 30 people per day the biotorium is going to last for three weekends in april so right there that's six days ideally it would be nice to have it if it were two months out of every semester and then maybe uh local schools can get involved during the weekday um that would be really just you know a dream um and i can see that happening um, of course, I want to make sure that this is a, a successful project. I want to make sure that people get something out of it, that there's community interest. Um, it's, it, but it's also about just sharing the aesthetic experience, about sharing this natural resource, that it's not just for me. It's not just for the artists. It's also for the non-artists. And they get to be the artists, and they get to be the scientists, and they can start contributing to whatever may be out there that we don't know about. On that note, I think that's a good place to leave it. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Brandon. Thanks for talking to us, Henry. And we're about to go see a performance by Houston artist Jim Pertle. I'm going to go see some art. Go see some art. And that concludes day one of the Satellite Art Fair in Austin, Texas. We'll be back four more days, four more podcasts with Austin-based guest hosts. So keep on the lookout for those. Thanks for listening and go see some performance art. Mm-hmm.